0: Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message.
1: Turn with me as we transition into our text this week. We're going to wrap up our study in Ruth, who's in. Enjoyed the study of Ruth with us while we've been in this Advent season. It's been a great study looking at how God is working in the big and in the small as he's woven in hope, peace, joy, and love. So today we're going to wrap up Ruth 4 and read it with me. Starting in verse 1, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are my witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and later laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Thank
0: you, Jonathan. Um, Boy, if we ever get, uh, they lived happily ever after in scripture, here's one, right? I mean, it's like, what, what a neat little bow tied off at the end of this incredible story. But if you've been with us, if you've read this story, here's what you know. This has been anything but neat. This has been incredibly messy. This has been tragic. This has been sad. This has been hard because Ruth and Naomi are both widows. And in the, in the last chapter we were in, I can't do a whole review, so if, I just encourage you to go back and read the story or listen to the messages, both that we've done so far. When we ended off, Ruth proposed to Boaz. And the reason she proposed or the reason Boaz didn't propose, I think, is because there's a nearer kinsman. The custom of the day was that when a woman lost her husband, the the closest relative would then take her as his wife in order to provide for her, in order to care for her, in order to continue the family line. So that's very much what's going on here. And Boaz, when Ruth proposes, we find out there's a nearer kinsman. There's some other relative that's closer to Ruth and Naomi then Boaz, and so Boaz says to Ruth, yes, I will marry you, but I got to check with this other guy first. And so we were kind of left hanging. What's going to happen now? And this is how chapter three ended. If you look at verse 18, when Ruth comes back to Naomi, tells her everything that happened with Boaz in the proposal, Naomi says to Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter t- turns out, for the man will not rest, talking about Boaz, but will settle the matter today. And that's where we were left off. And Boaz does exactly that. Okay, we'll do this really quick, because I really want to get to verse 11 and 12. We're going to camp out there for a little bit. Boaz goes to the city gate, which is a, it's a, it's a, it's a, economic and judicial center for this town. This is where business takes place. It has to take place publicly. There's not a lot of writing. There's not a lot of contracts. There have to be witnesses. This has got to be done out in the open. And so he goes to the city gate where this stuff typically happens. He, The nearer kinsman, the nearer relative comes by. Boaz rounds up some witnesses, some elders, some leaders in the community and says, everybody sit down. We've got to take care of this now. Naomi, who is... Boaz and this other guy's relative is selling the property that was owned by her husband Elimelech. She cannot retain ownership as a woman. She has to sell it. And so Boaz, informing this guy who apparently doesn't know what's going on, he says, "Hey, Naomi's selling the land that's owned by a relative. Will you redeem it?" To which this nearer kinsman says, "I will." And if you're living in this story well, at this point you're going No, right? Because you're so pulling for Ruth and Boaz, right? There's There's a romantic tension that's been brewing in this story and we want Ruth and Boaz to end up together and live happily ever after. But the nearer kinsman says, I'll redeem it. But did you notice that Boaz hasn't mentioned Ruth up to that point? It's almost like verse five reads, by the way, There's another piece to this puzzle because all the Redeemer, the other Redeemer agreed to at that point was he would buy the land and he would take Naomi under his care. Not marry her, but just provide for her, protect her. But then Boaz says, hey, she's got a daughter-in-law and this daughter-in-law is the only way the family line can be continued. So if you do this, You're going to have to take her as well and continue the family line. At this point, the guy bails. He's like, I can't do that. He's probably married, though the text doesn't say so. At the very least, he's got heirs. And if he takes on Ruth and they have children, that's going to split up his inheritance all the more into smaller pieces. He wants none of that. So he says, Boaz, you can do this. Take my place. Boaz takes off his shoe. That's weird. I don't... I mean... It's how they close deals, okay? Those of you in business, try it. See if it works. I don't know. Um, but This is how they close deals. He takes off his shoe. They make an agreement. The deal's done. We're good, right? There's a problem. It's a problem that goes all the way back to chapter one. We're not sure Ruth can have children. You remember that? When Naomi and her husband and her two boys leave Judah and go to Moab. And they meet Ruth, they meet Orpah, the two boys marry. They lived there for 10 years, no children. Ruth married Malon. I said the first week that I didn't know which one Ruth married. But it's in chapter four, right? Sorry, I missed that detail. 10 years, no children. 10 years. That's a big deal. We don't know if it's physically possible for this line to continue with Ruth and Boaz because Ruth hasn't had any children. Let's play a little what-if game here. This has been messy. This has been complicated, yes? And here's another. I know you know where this is going. We've read the end of chapter 4, but just let's live in those first few verses of chapter 4 and imagine what probably is a bit of angst. Is she going to be able to have children? We don't know. Let's play a what-if game. Couldn't God have given Ruth and Malon children in Moab? And wouldn't that just have made things a lot smoother? Even if Malon dies, if they'd have had two or three children and at least one of them was a son, Ruth and Naomi could have come back to Bethlehem with that son and Yes, it would have been tragic. It would have still been hard for both of them to be widowed. But I don't think, best I can understand, Naomi would have had to sell the land. She could have held on to it for the sake of her grandson. There would have been provision for them. The inheritance would have been secured. And the line, which we know is going to go all the way to King David and all the way to Messiah, Jesus, ultimately, would have been preserved. Wouldn't that have been a lot smoother? That been a lot neater. You ever feel like God goes around his elbow to get to his thumb? I do. I've said before, why couldn't he have just moved Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem with a job transfer? Why a worldwide census? Doesn't that seem like a little overkill? At the very least, he could have secured a hotel room for them. Why so complicated? I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself saying to God, God, I'm so thankful for where I am, but we could have got here a lot sooner. I I mean, just being transparent with you, I I grew up in and I came into local church ministry in a denomination, a particular denomination that I, I really am not associated with anymore, That had a lot of dysfunction, a lot of cultural problems, a lot of doctrinal deficiencies. That, to be honest with you, left me with a lot of knots, a lot of questions. I don't really think I was prepared to be a pastor when I became one. It's only, I've been in local church ministry almost 23 years, and it's only in the last five years or so that I feel like I've got the kind of pastoral clarity and biblical footing that I needed all along and I found myself at times looking at other pastors that I admire this is sinful on my part I've looked at other pastors that I admire who seem to have had this same kind of clarity from the very beginning of their ministry and I've gone God I, I we could have been we could have been much further down the road by now I, I could be so much more effective if I didn't have all these knots that have been untangled over the course of 20 some years. I've just had those moments where I've gone, God, does it really have to be this messy? Does it really have to be this complicated? Even in the tragedy, sometimes it feels like things happen that are hard and sad and painful. Yes, but then they seem to drag out longer than we think is necessary. Why is that, God? Why why is it when it's already so hard, do these other little complications come up? I mean, it's been hard enough for Ruth and Naomi to be widowed. Now we're not sure she can have children. Sometimes it just seems like God goes around his elbow to get to his thumb. We could play what ifs all day long in biblical stories and in our stories, couldn't we? But here's what we know about God. He does things the way he does them. If for no other reason than to make it absolutely abundantly clear, he did it. He did it for his glory, to make himself known. And I think to demonstrate how utterly weak and dependent we are on him. And there's something really beautiful about that. There's something really sweet about that. It's often in the most messy situations that we taste his goodness, that we taste his kindness, that we taste his sweet providence. So are they going to have kids, Ruth and Boaz? It's been messy enough. We don't know. But look what happens after the deal is struck. The witnesses start to bless Ruth and Boaz. Verse 11. This is where I want to live for a little bit. Verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. Pay attention to the three mays. Three mays, these two verses. May the Lord... Make the woman who is coming into your house, that's a reference to Ruth, be like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you, Boaz, act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May you prosper and be famous, Boaz. And then verse 12, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. This is crazy town. The 1st and 3rd May reference two of the most foundational events in the history of Israel, God's people, that are also some of the most messy and dysfunctional situations ever. And in the middle, may you, Boaz, be famous and prosper in this mess. Let's talk about this. May the woman coming into your house be Boaz, be like Rachel and Leah. You might know this story. Rachel and Leah were the wives of Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel. Jacob originally wanted Rachel. Rachel was prettier than Leah. That's in the Bible. I'm sorry. She was prettier than Leah, and, and, and Jacob wanted Rachel. So he goes to their father, Laban, and says, I'll work for seven years for you in order to get Rachel as my wife. Laban says, sure, deal, done. Works for seven years. He puts a veil over Leah and says, here's your wife. And for whatever reason, Jacob doesn't realize till the next morning... He wakes up, and he's like, you tricked me, Laban. He's like, yep, I did. Seven more years. He gets Rachel. And what ensues from that is a lot of jealousy between Rachel and Leah because Leah, though she's not the prettier wife, she's fertile. She's, ba- she's, she's giving birth to babies left and right. Rachel, the prettier one, and the more favored one, which makes Leah jealous even though she's having children, Rachel's barren. And so Rachel, to try to keep up with Leah, she offers Jacob some of her maidservants with which to have children. So Jacob says, sure, more children are born. Leah, not to be outdone even though she's having children of her own, gives Jacob some of her maidservants. They have more children. And you know what we get out of all that mess? The 12 tribes of Israel. It's like a Jerry Springer show. (laughs) So may, may this woman, Boaz, be like Rachel and Leah. Then may the child born to you, may your house be like the house of Perez, who was born to Tamar and Judah. Judah, of the tribe of Judah, is one of the children of Leah and Jacob, or Israel, which is the line of Boaz, of Elimelech, of Obed, of David, of Jesus, our Messiah. This is the line. Judah takes a wife. Her name is uh, Shua, I think. They have three boys, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, or Shelah, I'm not sure how to say it. Three boys... Judah secures a wife for his first son, Ur. Her name is Tamar. The Bible says, Genesis 38, that Ur is a wicked man. And because he's wicked, the Bible says, the Lord killed him. Okay? So Tamar is now a widow. Judah does the right thing. He looks at his secondborn, Onan, and says, you take Tamar as your wife and continue the family line. Onan says, okay. Okay. I want to be careful there's children in here. They don't have any children, and it's Onan's fault, not Tamar's. Okay? That ticks the Lord off, okay, and he kills Onan. So now Judah's going, I've let two of my boys marry this gal. I'm not giving her my third because he might die too. So he tells Tamar, look, just stay in my house as a widow And when Shelah, or however you pronounce his name, gets a little older, I'll give him to you as your husband. But the Bible makes it clear, he really has no intention of giving his third son to Tamar. So Tamar hatches a plot in her head. She dresses up as a prostitute, disguises herself, tricks Judah, her father-in-law, into intimacy. And the product of that trickery? Perez the son through whom the line of Judah will continue all the way down to Boaz, all the way down to Obed, all the way down to David, all the way down to Jesus. This is crazy. This is messy. This is not the stuff you put on social media about your family. (laughs) This is the stuff nobody wants to talk about, right, at the dinner table. But listen, we all got that stuff, don't we? We've all got that dysfunction. We've all got that kind of mess in our story. And in all of that personal mess and dysfunction and failure and sin and what ifs and God coulda, shoulda, woulda, this coulda been a lot neater, I coulda been a lot further, I coulda been there a lot faster But in all of that, we're trusting this God who offers us hope, peace, joy, love in his son, Jesus Christ. And we find a God who seems to thrive in working in our mess, working his big plan, right? It's a big story. It's a huge story. It's a massive story. It's it's the, the cosmic Unbelievable, mind-boggling unfolding of the glory of Almighty God in our little mess and dysfunction. And that's how he does things. This is what the people are saying is they're saying, "Oas, you and Ruth, May, your household." Be blessed in these ways, and you know here 's the other thing they 're going back a long, long way. this is the the, the two instances they're referencing are pre exodus, which we know Israel was in exodus for, in Egypt for how long Four hundred years. This story takes place during the period of the judges, which was also four hundred years so we 're potentially talking about they're rooting their thinking in this little moment with Boaz and Ruth and Naomi in. Potentially over a thousand years of Israel's history. Do you know how old our country is? Less than 300. It just, to me, that's just helpful, kind of paradigm shattering to think that just how short sighted I am, because we have a God who not only works in the mess. He works in the mess over long, 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 long periods of time. And sometimes the benchmarks, the major benchmarks of his plan span dozens of generations. And in the middle of that, here we are trying to sort out our marriages, our children, our finances, our business, our health, our losses, our tragedies, our sorrows, our sickness. We're trying to navigate these big peaks and valleys. And you know what we get in the Bible? Is we get these clear pictures and clear truths about a God in stories that are very compressed. Does that make sense? We can read the whole story of Ruth in about 10 minutes. How many of you understand it wasn't that easy to live through it? I think the highlights we get in the Bible... Sometimes we fail to miss that the, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, Judah, Jacob, Rachel, Leah, Tamar, Perez, these people these people lived through this dysfunction and through this mess just like you and I do. And having to learn to trust this God. I, I've got an image I want you to look at. You guys will know what this is. Billiard ball. Anybody play pool? Okay, a few of you. When you think of a billiard ball, if you imagine holding it in your hand, what would you feel? Hard, Hard and smooth. Perfect. Hard and smooth. I did a little reading. Somebody prompted me in this direction, and I did a little reading. If you, scientists have done the math, and I can't even begin to explain the math to you, okay? I'm not even going to try. But somehow, they've done the math, If you were to compress the earth to the size of a billiard ball, it would actually be smoother than a billiard ball. I mean, imagine Mount Everest, the Rockies, the Blue Ridge Mountains. If you compressed the earth to a size of a billiard ball, it would be smoother than the billiard ball. Conversely, if you blew the billiard ball up to the size of the earth, the peaks and valleys would make Mount Everest look like a molehill. Because it's compressed. Do you follow me? So when we read scripture, we mustn't fail to realize that these compressed highlights, the story of Ruth and Naomi and widowhood and kinsman, redeemer and gleaning in the harvest for three months and, and then getting married and having children and coming to the end where they all live happily ever after that, that was real life. Real people, just like us, having to trust this God who works in the mess over long periods of time. And now here we are, some 2,000 years removed from the birth of Christ, 2,000 years into the age of the church and the Holy Spirit, and what are we doing still? Jonathan mentioned it. We're waiting. We're waiting. We're, We're experiencing hope, peace, joy, love, but in part, we experience hope, peace, joy, and love even when Ava dies. Even in our sorrow, we taste these things in part and we long for their fulfillment when every tear will be wiped away. When just like he came before, he returns. And there's a new heavens, and a new earth, and all, listen, at that point, He'll not only reconcile all the mess to himself, and we'll go, oh. But he'll wipe all the mess out. And everything will be right. But in the meantime, we trust him. And we, we speak strange blessings over each other. Right? You, you do this, and I do this. I prayed with someone after the first service about their, their, their family drama going on at Christmas time. You don't have to raise your hand, but who else has got family drama going on at Christmas time? I prayed with him. <laughs> he raised his hand anyway. I, I, pray, I prayed with this person, and I, I Mary and I both, we spoke blessings over really what seems like a mess that, may not get cleaned up anytime soon. But isn't that what we do, is we trust a God who takes these things that we're just like, this is just too messy and too complicated, and in and through all of it, at the very least, at the very least, he's conforming us to the image of Christ. And isn't that worth it? 2 Peter 3.8. I don't like this verse. Let me say that out, out, up front. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Don't like that at all. Peter, that helps me none. Well, it really does. It, it does if I stop and I get past my selfish impatience. Because what is he saying? He's saying, look, the Lord doesn't work on our timetable. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. And and here's what we need to admit. The sum is us. I count slowness in, in a way that would cause me to question this God who works in the mess over long periods of time. But is patient toward you, I wish I had time to unpack this verse. Patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Some of you, all of us, the Lord's being patient. I've said this before. I heard Tim Keller say this. Don't despise the pace of God in someone's life. And I've I've certainly wanted to apply that to how I see other people, but I've started recently thinking about that in my own life. Don't despise the pace of God, Bradley, in your life because he's still working on me and he's patient with me. He's not done with me yet. My justification is secure, but my sanctification is still a work in progress. Sometimes that mess That dysfunction, is those things are the perfect tools in God's hand to mold me into the man that he designed me to be. So Boaz, may you prosper. (laughs) May you be famous in all this. I gotta hurry, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, He went into her. And don't miss this, don't miss this. Underline it, highlight it, circle it, star it. The Lord gave her conception. The Lord gave her conception. It was just at the right time. She could have conceived in Moab, but that wasn't the plan. I don't fully understand why. What I know is the The Bible's telling me the Lord planned it for this time and she bore a son. And then lest we think Naomi's going to slip into the shadows of Boaz and Ruth happily ever after, watch this. Then the women said to Naomi, you remember what Naomi said to the women in chapter one? She got back to Bethlehem and she said to the women of Bethlehem, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Means bitter. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, I've come back empty. But then the women say this to her Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Who's that redeemer? Is it Boaz? Wait, wait a minute. I don't think so. Watch, keep reading. And may his name be renowned in Israel. <coughs> he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for, you, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more than seven sons to you, has given birth to him. So who's her redeemer? Obed. Now I have to confess, I did not know what happens next was physically possible. Thankfully we have a children's minister who's also a medical professional who could correct me on such things. But verse 16 Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. I just thought that meant his caregiver, but no. She nursed Obed. I didn't know that was possible. But it is, and I think in the same way the Lord gave Ruth conception, he caused Naomi's body to wake up, and she became the nurse of Obed. I think... When the people say, may he be a restorer to you of life, there's a little taste. This Naomi who comes back saying, I'm empty. I have nothing. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me, is now holding her grandson and nursing him. Has it been a painful journey to this point? Yes. Has it been messy? Yes. Would she have chosen it to happen all this way? Probably not. But she's holding her grandson and she's nursing him. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. This is Ruth and Boaz's child. A son's been born to Naomi, so the family line has been continued and they named him Obed, which means servant of God. I think that's what... It's being implied here is that Obed is going to care for Naomi in her old age. And he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Amazing. And they lived happily ever after. Two things are celebrated at the end of this book. Number one, the plan of redemption marches on in the long, messy ordeals, in the highly dysfunctional circumstances of the human existence. God has just put a major piece of the redemptive story in place in one of the most messy and tragic and sad situations that we encounter in Scripture. Secondly, the same God who is working his big plan that stretches all throughout history is restoring joy to his people that he chose to be in his story. And this is, I think, critical for all of us to understand, is that if you call yourself a Christian, if you really do believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not that you've invited God into your story, he's invited you into his. And if you get that right, if you understand that, then I think your mind and heart can be open to a God who works in mess and dysfunction over long periods of time. And your joy, your hope, your peace, your love might not be compromised when you just can't make sense of it all. If we've learned anything from this story, we've learned, if I were to summarize it, I'll say these four things. God is always with us especially in the dark seasons that seem hopeless. He never leaves us. He never left Naomi and Ruth. He never abandoned them. Their steps were hard, but they were ordered. Number two, the God who invited us all into his big story, he cares and he's attentive to our lives at the personal and family level while he works at the global national universal level in ways that we can't comprehend because we're living on the billiard ball that's magnified up a million times over in the peaks and the valleys they're just so oh god i can't see but you know you read through this and what is god telling us over and over again trust me trust me i got a plan Number three, we should never conclude, we should never conclude that our messy, dysfunctional lives and stories have disqualified us from future glory. It really doesn't matter what's happened. It really doesn't matter whose fault it is. The gospel story says, repent, humble yourself, and trust. It's not your job to fix it, It's your job to trust the God who works in all those things. So don't think think the stuff that you're embarrassed to put on social media or to even talk about with those you know and love and trust the most, that that's disqualified you from future glory such as this, because it hasn't. Number four, we must not grow impatient in the difficulties we face by the sovereign hand of God, I'm never going to back off of that. The Bible doesn't let me. That might last a year, 10 years, or five decades. It took Noah a long time to build the ark. Right? Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. They were in captivity for 400 years. People love to quote Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you. I've got a hope and a future and and all that. And it's true. Do you know what the context of that was? There were false prophets. Israel's in captivity in Babylon. And there were false prophets that were going around telling God's people, we ain't going to be here long. This is going to be quick. It's over. Just hang on. And Jeremiah gets a word from the Lord, says, Nope, you're going to be here 70 years. 70 years in captivity, but I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Some of the dysfunction might be dragging on a long time, but don't grow impatient because the Lord does know his plans for you. And they are plans to give you a hope and a future. They are plans to bless you and restore joy to you. I can't guarantee you, the Bible won't let me guarantee you that all wrongs are going to be made right for you in this life. But what I can guarantee you is that in all the mess, God is working for your good, for your joy, and ultimately for his glory. And we can trust this God who is the Alpha and the Omega. Because between the beginning and the end, He put a cross in the middle. Cross where he exhausted his wrath on his own son that you and I deserved. And though we want to try to we want to try to box God into our circumstantial realities, God is working at such a such a macro level, I, I just we struggle to 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 see that but i think he wants us to just know and trust look i love you my my son died for you that you need to know i love you and i know what i'm doing amen yeah. father i i see man i see on all our faces, the struggle in between. We know this, we see this, we laud this, we praise you for this. We sing glory to your name because we know you're a good God who sees all, knows all, rules all, controls all, works all things together. That not an ounce of our pain is wasted, not, a, not an ounce of Our dysfunction is going to discredit us from future glory. But, Lord, in the middle, it's so hard. It's so hard sometimes. But I pray over all of us that you would give us faith. Increase our faith. Increase our confidence. And along with it, hope, peace, joy, and love. May we, as spirit-filled people, love you and love each other as we we live the little span of time you've given us on this planet. As we walk those ordered steps out, may we be people who rest in you, who love you, and who love each other And, and pray for each other. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com slash give. Thanks again for joining us.